0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you, by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them, but instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already.
1: One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors
2: even said, that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing, they wish they could be doing something as good.
0: So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this.
2: I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh,
0: you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency. That can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through
1: digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In this episode, I speak to seasoned industry veteran Richard Fenning, former CEO of Control Risks, the global risk consultancy with over 2,000 consultants working across 42 offices around the world. I first heard Richard as a guest on the Distinctive Leaders podcast run by our client, Andrew Wallace of Leithwaite. Having hugely enjoyed their conversation, I knew they had to get Richard on the show. Richard's career in consulting started at Pricewaterhouse, where, as he shares in our conversation, he wasn't having much success. Seeing that he wasn't going to progress where he was, he decided to take a leap of faith and join the the at-the-time small boutique Control Risks. Having started close to the bottom of the firm, he climbed all the way to Global CEO, where he spent 14 years leading the business through significant international expansion. Since retiring as CEO, Richards turned his attention to two of his other passions, executive coaching through his Manchester Square Partners practice and writing, having chronicled his many adventures with control risks in his new book, What on Earth Can Go Wrong? Tales from the Risk Business. In today's conversation, we cover a ton of ground going both deep as well as wide. We discuss a range of topics that will help you on your journey, whether you're climbing up the ladder in your firm or sitting at the top, helping to shape its future direction. There are very few people in our industry who reach the level that Richard did. And it was great to be able to sit down with him for this conversation. Whether you are currently trying to plot your own path to the top of your firm, or maybe you are already a partner and want to understand what separates the best leaders from the rest. I know you are going to get so much from what Richard has to say. So, with the intro done, all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Richard Fenning. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nick. So I'm really looking forward to
0: today and I, I feel like I've had a bit of a sneak peek because obviously I know you did an interview with our client Andrew Wallace at Leithway and really enjoyed your conversation with him. Started reading your book and thank you by the way for sharing that and was really excited to get you on the show to share your story with my listeners. So while I might know some of it, I'm keen to share all of it with my listeners. So thank you for making the time today. In terms of kickoff, I think to that point it would be great if you for everyone listening, you could just give a brief overview of of your career today and how you got to to where you are today. Okay, I'll do that. And thank you very much. So, nearly all of my
2: career was spent uh in the risk consulting business with a firm called Control Risks, which I guess is one of the sort of main players in that in that area. And by risk consulting, I'm talking about international security, political risks, cybercrime, fraud, corruption, all of those range of risks that sit outside the kind of normal money-making activities of businesses, but risks that can have either a very adverse or very positive impact on any kind of organization's fortunes. So in very general terms, that's the world that I occupied. And I did that for the best part of three decades and I spent 14 years of that time as CEO of Control Risks. And that's a global job. It's a it's a global organization. It has about 34 offices around the world. It employs about 3,000 people. And it does a whole range of sort of consulting and operational activities in that broad space that I described. So I guess somewhere in there are my credentials
0: for being here today. Fantastic ritual. Well, I think very succinct bio and a ton for us to dive into. Not least because I think, as somebody who probably worked in consulting in less exciting areas, I think the risk that you deal with and dealt with, I think, probably has some quite good stories to tell. And we'll, we'll see if we come on to some of those later. To start with, I think you know you touched on that point that you you know you spent a sort of large part of your tenure there as CEO, and I'd, I'd love to talk about that journey because for a lot of my listeners, that is an ambition—be it to become a partner, a CEO, a managing partner—that. Getting to the top of their consulting firm is something they're excited about. Before we do sort of go into, I guess, that latter part of your journey, there was something in your book that I just I made a little underline of because I really wanted to ask you about, which is everything you've just described, the risk, it all sounds quite daunting. And I, I know in your book you talk about the fact you're actually quite risk-averse. And I would love to actually maybe start with what led you to go into risk in the first place because it seems like a slightly odd choice for someone who is by nature self proclaimed risk averse how did you how did that control risk sort of story start there was a bit of push and a bit of pull so the push to go there was
2: i was having a somewhat unsuccessful career at what was then called price waterhouse and the consulting part of what is now price waterhouse cooper's and a, a, a realization that i was probably treading water and going round in circles in my 20s And the opportunity to join Risk, which in those days was a much smaller organization, came along. It did sound exotic. It did sound interesting. It also sounded quite risky. But all my life I have been, or all my adult life, I've been a frustrated history teacher. And that was the pull that, that got me in there, was the idea that the activities of the firm, the issues that it dealt with, the issues that its clients were dealing with were highly topical. They were all about kind of the cut and thrust of how business fares in abrasive geopolitics. And there was enough of the sort of corduroy suit wearing history teacher bit of me that thought I would like to be, I'd like to have a ringside seat at some of that. So that's that's kind of how I how I got going. In terms of sort of risk aversion, I'd led up until that point, a very cosseted life and never really anticipated that I would find myself dealing with issues that were really quite acute at times. And I never really anticipated that I would spend a large chunk of my life roaming around some of the seamier parts of the globe. There was a sort of romantic impulse to want to be that person. Uh, there were certainly moments where I wanted to swap the corduroy suit for the linen suit of sort of Graham Greene-esque romantic writer sitting in some far-off clime. So there was a lot of sort of kind of alter egos at play that, that drove me to that. But I guess to the point is that over a long period of time, I became more sensitized and more objective and realistic about risk and what is risky and what isn't risky and trying to distinguish kind um, of headline impulsive emotional responses to things from a more cerebral calculated sense of what actually is at stake. And that's that's the process in large part that I went through.
0: I love the history teacher analogy. And I, I guess to your point over those years, you've, you've probably helped and you might not even be able to talk about some of it, but help make or at least see history in the making during that time. Um, and again, i I think some of those stories may come out today, and I'm, I'm intrigued to dig into that emotional and versus calculated piece if we have time. But I think to your point, and it, it struck me what you were saying there around you'd been at Price Waterhouse, and actually you sort of you're treading water. It maybe wasn't for you; you weren't for them. Whichever way it worked, obviously the move to control risks really really helped accelerate your career. And I'm interested in those sort of early years because we have listeners across the sort of spectrum from senior to junior. When you landed, or maybe those first few years. Well, was sort of climbing to where you got to to becoming the CEO. Was that something that you saw as a goal? Was or how did you turn what was probably a fledgling career in PW or P, sorry Price Waterhouse as it was into the sort of accelerated career you started to have at Control Risk? Were there any specific inflection points or changes that you you remember making that really helped with that? So I think there were, but not to
2: start with. So I arrived there, I think in my late twenties or around around the age of about thirty. And my initial sense was, this is energizing, it's fascinating, it's giving me a kind of stimulation that, frankly, I wasn't up to that point getting out of my career really at all. Uh, And that was more my fault, because I just didn't really, you know, I did some really interesting things at Pricewaterhouse, and I'm very grateful for the firm for giving me that grounding and that start. But I never really thought that I was, I was kind of synchronized with the the sort of momentum and the rhythm of how that organization worked. And at no stage did I ever see myself projected forward to being in any kind of senior position there. So the early years when I joined Control Risks, and again, it was a much, much smaller, more specialized company then than it is now.
0: Just for our listeners, can you just place how, how big was Control Risks when you joined? It was probably, had probably about, 50 or 60 employees
2: and it was in mostly in London with a handful of offices around the world it wasn't huge so it was you know by by global standards i guess now it was then a tiny organisation mm. but had a sort of somewhat disproportionate kind of brand strength and brand impact given the fact that those days there were very few firms doing that kind of corporate intelligence international security work now there are many more but in those days there were much smaller numbers so for a small company, it's sort of boxed above its weight, I guess. So to start with, no. To start with, I just thought, this is really interesting. This is fascinating. This is kind of washing that whole mainstream consulting. I found somewhat stifling environment. It's washing that out of my head. One thing that Pricewaterhouse had done was that they did employ me in Japan for a few years. And looking back now, trying to navigate my way through Japan was a huge huge moment for me at the time it just felt like a a blind person in fog I mean it was it was (laughs) extraordinarily
0: confusing as to kind of how that country worked and what was happening and that that must have been so I just just I I went to Japan two years ago and so were you was that Tokyo where were you for your time there in Tokyo for three years yeah and I know I found it challenging even with the signs in english and i suspect when you were there nothing was in english nothing was really in english
2: and nobody really spoke english and my attempts to speak japanese were were pretty horrendous <laughs> so that had i mean at the time it just it just was a was a fascinating but somewhat confusing experience looking back it was one of those moments where actually uh, only with the benefit of hindsight do you realize how much you've learned in terms mm-hmm. of adaptation to somebody else's culture being able to see the world through other people's eyes being able to navigate confusing organizations and organizational politics. It was a
0: crash course in all of that. I just didn't realize it at the time. And just, sorry, Richard, no, I'm jumping. I just, I'm intrigued. Was that something you had asked for? Was that a sort of, and if so, why did you choose Japan? No, I, it, it was just a, for family reasons that Japan, okay.
2: Japan worked out at the time. And yeah, no, so I uh, it, it was entirely, it was entirely fortuitous, but, but, in, in retrospect, fantastic. So at Control Risks, I took a while to find my feet, and eventually I started to find really the subject matter of what the firm did uh, and they enabled me to sort of progress faster because it just chimed with what I was interested in. I liked the people, I liked the organisation, I liked its values. It woke in me a kind of sense of adventure that we were just possibly talking about that had been somewhat dormant until that point. And I started to think I would quite like to have a senior career. And so I suppose also something that had been dormant in me was a, was a latent sense of, of ambition and a probably less than desirable aspect to my character, which is, I, I can do that better than you can, which is not something I'm particularly proud of. But that started to flicker into life, this sense of, actually, I wouldn't mind having a go at running some of this. Uh, and so, yeah, so I guess it, it took until my early 30s for any sense of ambition or a desire for leadership to
0: start to come into focus. But it, it was blurred and it was slow. I think that's a really interesting point, though, and actually how that catalyzed within that smaller firm. And I'm intrigued to your point around and I think every consultant listening to this probably has some of what you just described there of I can do it better than, than you can. And I know that 25 to 30-year-old Nick would have thought exactly the same thing. And I'm intrigued, particularly for anyone who might be in a bigger firm and thinking about moving to a smaller firm, was it that size that helped you? Was it, and again, I, I'm i not lead, trying to lead you, but I'm I'm sort of, I'm interested, did it, did it, was the fact that maybe you were closer to the leadership team in that smaller firm mean that you could sort of see them in action and start to foster that view that actually I could do this versus, say, a Pricewaterhouse where, you know, you were 50 rungs below? Was that part of that catalyst or is, is it sort of not as simplistic as that?
2: Yes, I was at least 50 rungs below at Pricewaterhouse. In fact, I think they invented new rungs just <laughs> to get me even lower down the, <laughs> lower, lower down the management hierarchy. It was certainly that. It was certainly being in a small firm which had a highly informal, easily accessible, if you're interested, come and talk to us about it. No kind of restrictions really on kind of what you could take an interest in Uh, and very welcoming and very friendly and enormously grateful to my colleagues at the time for taking me into their world. It was slightly unusual in that the firm had been started not exclusively, but predominantly by former army officers. And there was a world that I was unfamiliar with. And I think they felt that I, because I'd had a business career, well, I'd had a very short business career, but I think they gave me more credit for what I knew than what I actually did know at the time. But they let me into their world. And so it was a sort of journey of exploration. It was a, a learning process. And it was definitely, it was more intimate, it was easier to get to see people, to understand people, to see role models, and to really try and get a sense of how these people who'd already in their lives done really remarkable things, uh, to get a sense of how they kind of deported themselves, how they interacted with each other, how they interacted with clients, and to see all that happening uh with clients who were going through really quite significant kind of issues it was a crash course in all of that and that was the size of the firm that enabled that to happen but as i say the fact that i was fascinated and interested in what we were doing in the subject matter in a way that i just previously hadn't been was
0: was also this sort of accelerant in the mix makes a lot of sense I want to turn, and I might be fast-forwarding a little here, so if there's gaps that we need to fill in, do stop me. I know that when we spoke before, you mentioned another, I guess, foreign excursion that had a big impact on your career it was, your, it was your time in America. And you highlighted that that was quite a big, I guess, a fundamental shift when you got to the sort of senior levels. Because obviously, as everyone listening and you and I know you can get into senior management, but then there's still obviously steps to go before you're going to have either the CEO role or a sort of senior partner role in a consultancy. And I'd love to actually spend some time on, on that point because I think you know everyone looks across the pond and sees America and hears a lot of how different it is and thinks it's different. But unless you've been there, you don't know. And I, I've not been over there, but I know you mentioned obviously it had that profound impact on you. Could you just share a bit more about actually what was it about that time how did it come about and what was it about your time in america that really did have that impact and made you sort of have that mindset shift
2: so that's right so i went to america in 1997 uh, and did three years there i was sent out there to try and rescue a, 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 a essentially a sort of failing operation for the firm in new york So it was hard. It was really difficult because I'd never been to America before. I'd certainly never lived in America before. I had all the usual prejudices and biases about America that most Brits have. Uh, And I was thrown quite literally in the deep end. I'd already had a couple of excursions into the deep end before I went to America. There was a very complex sort of corporate affairs issue that Controlers was facing in Colombia in South America. A year or two before, and I'd been intimately involved in trying to sort that out. And I think, as a consequence of being involved in that, the senior management of the firm thought maybe there's more to this lab than we previously imagined. Let's give him a go and see whether he can sort out this embryonic operation that we had in New York that was not doing very well. And three years later, by hook or by crook, things had, things had got a bit better and the firm was better established in New York and was able to then kind of flourish. So I felt I'd sort of, I, I, I earned my spurs by taking on a difficult assignment in a country that I knew very little about. But over and above that, America as a country had a profound impact on me. And I may, Nick, be remembering this now slightly through the rear view mirror with heavily nostalgic, rose-coloured spectacles on. But I am certain that the experience of working in America made me more explicitly and unashamedly ambitious. And like a lot of English people of my generation, the sort of kind of instilled into you never to appear to be trying too hard, never look as if you want something, always try and be this sort of somewhat languid, uh, casual, self-deprecating oh i couldn't possibly sort of hesitant ridiculous sort of english kind of nature you know it's like you know a character from a richard curtis movie this is the sort of ideal that you're sort of bred to to emulate and going to america just knocked that out of me i thought no i can do this this is very hard work but it is it is working and in like most kind of crisis situations or difficult situations, you have to experiment by doing all the wrong things before you eventually find a formula that sort of works. And I, I did that. And it's a great opportunity to learn from one's mistakes and to try things out. And I was given a lot of latitude to be fair. But there is something about America. And I, you know, like lots of people, I've spent now a lot of time in America, lived there and have been a very regular visitor. And there are bits about America that, frankly, appall me. But there is more about America, despite the headline political drama. There is more about America that I find hugely inspirational, and it is—it is just so different to living in Europe, to living in Britain. It is a—it is a foreign country with a capital F, and it's an absolute journey of exploration going to live there. And it—it it changed me for sure, and it did make me. It did make me think, not only can I do this, but it made me accept that it's a reasonable expectation to want to get to the top of an organization. Every taxi driver in New York wants to get to the top of an organization. It's just a different, just got a different vibe. And that has its downsides, but absolute, absolute certain. And it isn't obviously any kind of earthly paradise as a nation, but it is different.
0: And it did something to me. Well, I can just in what you're saying, I can hear that. And I think Richard, particularly for those of, you know, of, of us, me and, and my listeners who haven't been over you, you talked about their sort of the the good points and how it really has had that impact. Was it, to your point, was it simply the I say simply, was it that everyone was more overt and comfortable talking about those aspirations? So actually you felt more comfortable? Were there other elements? I'm interested to get a picture of what what were those ingredients over that time that made you think, actually, yeah, this is not only something I can do, but it's all right for me as a Brit, to your point, self-deprecating, you know, as we are, to actually say, no, I'm going to achieve this. And I guess feel that in yourself, not simply saying it. What, what were those traits that you sort of learned or were being reinforced while you are over there? So it's, it's, it's people not being
2: embarrassed about ambition and being able to just wear that more easily. That's one factor. I think it's more forgiving of people who try and fail. I think there is a sort of sense in America that you've got to fail a few times and pick yourself up off the floor and keep going before you will eventually succeed. It's a slight contradiction there because America is also in love with the immediate rags to riches kind of story as well. But there is a sense in which it's good to try and it doesn't matter if you fail. You've just got to pick yourself up and try even harder next time. There's a work ethic thing as well. It's stronger in America. It's a huge generalization, but I think it is stronger in many ways uh, in America. And it's kind of more transparent. I mean, the conversations one had with clients very often were you would propose something to them and they'd say, no, that's ridiculous. We don't want to do that. Or they'd say, yeah, let's do it. There wasn't this sort of passive aggressive hedging game that often goes on between A client and a consultant that you kind of sometimes get in this country, I think, where you you talk around things endlessly and in the end, do some sort of watered down version of what both of you want to want to do. And in America, it's just it's just more binary. And if they don't like what you do, they tell you. And if they like what you do, they tell you. So there is a sort of transactional aspect to that, which has its downsides but also just enables you to learn lessons much more quickly. Because if you kind of slip up or get it wrong or misfire in some ways, people are going to tell you. And there's none of this sort of, well, he tried hard, so let's
0: give him the benefit of the doubt sort of stuff. There's no medals for second, third and fourth place over there. There
2: are no medals. No, there is an encouragement to try again, but there is only one medal and and that's winning. I think certainly in, in kind of corporate America, that's not my children were small then in America and well, my older children were small then in America and that's a very different world. There are lots of medals for coming, fifth, <laughs> fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. In fact, it's, it's sort of unfashionable in modern education parlance in America for there to be too much focus for small children on, on winning or losing. But that switch flicks. Mm. Um, and once you get, un- once you get le- unleashed onto the capitalist battlefield uh, there are no prizes for coming second.
0: And that's a good effect in many ways.
1: <laughs> how did you,
0: I guess, either prepare yourself or or maybe be- a better question is, given what you know now, I'm sure when you came back, and I want to come on to that in a moment, people that you knew were going the other way and saying, well, Richard, how do I prepare myself if I'm going all- across to America? And I ask this because I know a number of people who have, have done secondments or stints in America. And I'll be honest with varying degrees of success. I think some people take to that environment very naturally. I think some, to your point, Find that jump from a British culture to an American one just too much of a gulf, and I'd I'd like to just dig into any advice you would give to people. Is it simply prepare yourself for the things you just talked about, or is there something that people can be doing to really help them? You know, make the most and hopefully come first on that corporate battlefield and not be left behind when they they land in the US. Yeah, I mean, it's the old adage, isn't it? We have we have one mouth and two ears, and
2: it is a question of taking America on its own terms and not arriving with a British prejudiced view of what you think America is and what you think America thinks about Britain. And you see this playing out politically all the time. That very, very tired conversation that British politicians like to engage in about the special relationship and every subsequent prime minister we have tries to reignite what they call the special relationship you look at it from an american perspective and it's just it's just some sort of quaint disney film it's a version it's an special edition of the crown that is played on <laughs> american television it is just utter nonsense when you when you can l- listen to that conversation from an american perspective it's just utter nonsense and that's the trap not to fall into is not to have any sense of your any inflated sense of your own importance and to listen to observe, to try and get under the skin somewhat of what makes different parts of America tick in different ways. This is a continent in 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 the form of a country with enormous variations. I'm very conscious that most of my experience was was in New York and Washington, which is far different from working in other parts of America, and and that's probably also a lesson to learn. It's not it's not a singular homogenous business culture it varies enormously which I guess it does in every country but there is a sense I think sometimes that we think wherever you encounter kind of America it's going to fall into the set, roughly the same kind of cultural norms and that that's not the case at all but it's listen before you speak it's just understand that being British in America is in some ways an enormous privilege but it's not the enormous privilege that you probably think it is if you've spent too much time watching
0: movies and listening to British politicians over the years. So it's not all people asking you if you know the Queen and David Beckham and had tea with the Prime Minister. (laughs) Not really, no. (laughs) And is it foggy in London and yeah, all of that, yeah. Then coming back the other way, because obviously you you did your time over there, you turned that office round, and we may or may not come back to that with with some of our sort of following conversations, because I'm sure there's a fascinating story in how you did that. But obviously, this in sort of I guess lit this fire in you and this ambition. And almost coming back the other way, I'd love to understand how you tempered that when you came back, so you kept the ambition but matched that with I guess the British culture. Because there'll be a lot of people listening to this who might think I, I really like what you're saying, Richard. I'd love to to take that sort of ambitious nature myself. I'm not, you know, I might not have a chance to go to the US, but I'd love to bring that into how I act and work today but obviously want to do that in a way that's not going to alienate me in, in my large consulting firm or small consulting firm. And it may have not been as deliberate as that, but do you remember that sort of period where you came back and how you balanced all of those great characteristics you learned in America with the sort of expectations of the British culture and you not coming back and people think, oh, Richard's now one of those Yanks, he's been Americanized and is very brash, et cetera. How did you temper that to work with the culture that, that sort of you'd come back to in the UK? No, I don't think I tempered it at all.
2: I think I was extraordinarily irritating. <laughs> I think I did exactly what you just described, is that I I came back thinking that I had found the secret elixir of how you make consulting firms work and go faster and expand and and, and all the rest of it. And I think people found me enormously obnoxious for quite a long time because I thought that I was somehow on a different footing to everybody else who sort of stayed behind in the UK, and um, it took me it took me longer to get used to being back in the UK, weirdly, than it took me to get used to being in America. Uh, it was a much harder return than it was an original exit to go to America. And I think for that for that reason is that I missed being there. I missed all the all the things we've just been describing. And the consequence of that was I spent too much time rather tediously explaining to people their own shortcomings and why we all needed to go and spend three years in America in order to be more, more like me. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine, Nick, just quite how tedious being around me must have been. And that took quite a while for that to kind of rub off. I should say, I don't think you have to go to America in order to get some of this, this sort of high octane adrenaline i think you there is a process of just going and adjusting to any other culture and i think uh america did something special to me but i don't think it has to be america i think there is something of making that change of making that adjustment and
0: learning more about yourself that you can get from going anywhere really let's touch on that i want to come back to your point around how you approached i guess your return to the uk but i think just to hold and close on that point around sort of international postings, I think you've almost given it there. But to your point, just so I'm clear and, and just in case there is anything to add, am I right that it's actually just trying another culture, being out of your comfort zone, be that Japan, be that the US, be that across the sort of channel in France, just actually having that foreign experience and the, I guess, the empathy and the sort of culture that you would adopt with that? Is that something, you know, when you were sort of leading control, is that some the key advice you would give to your team is just do a few years somewhere, learn? And I guess just within that, is there a hierarchy? If someone's thinking, where do I go? Are there, I guess, groups of countries that would be better placed to create that than others? Or is it simply go somewhere else that isn't your home nation? I think it's just go somewhere else that's not your home nation. And not everybody
2: can do that. Uh, And certainly it's a very expensive process of having people Working overseas in that way. And most organizations, quite rightly, are not prepared to fund that as a sort of somewhat elaborate long term process of of personal development. So I'm conscious that I may be recommending something that may be beyond the grasp of, of quite a lot of people listening to our conversation. But if it is available and it is a possibility, I would seriously encourage people. To have a look at it. And I don't think it hugely matters. I think certainly in the, in the control risk world, the world divided into complex frontline, somewhat chaotic countries, and the opposite of that, the inverse of that, of, of kind of more, more ordered, more predictable, more familiar business cultures. So you could go to Nigeria or you could go to Singapore, and um, Singapore is going to be obviously more ordered and somewhat more structured than Nigeria. Uh, I know which one I prefer. But Nigeria, obviously. So I think I think it, it, it doesn't really matter. What do I say? You, different- you
0: you can't tee me up for that and not answer with and not, not explain their rationale.
2: Well it, uh, Nigeria just provides you with a most extraordinary kind of sugar rush of pure form capitalism. It's got something that I don't think any other country that I know well has which is a sense of its own absolute kind of destiny. They're just a sense that nothing is going to deter us here. Uh, and now obviously Nigeria uh, over many years, including the colonial period, has been appallingly mismanaged and its enormous hydrocarbons wealth has been frittered away by by people who should know a lot better. So I'm not suggesting it's a model for anything really. But there is something about the Nigerian spirit. There is something about Nigerian entrepreneurial energy in its raw form that I've never, never seen anywhere else. And it also has something that I think a lot of countries in Nigeria's position suffer from, and it doesn't feel sorry for itself. And in some ways, it has every right to feel sorry for itself. Uh, history has not necessarily done it very many favors. Uh, and in some ways, It's enormous misfortune to be so oil rich because even more things to go wrong, I guess. But there is something there is something hugely energizing and admirable about about Nigeria. And it is chaotic. It is crazy in many ways. Um, But there's a reason why the Nigerian diaspora is so successful around the world. And it's something about the particular circumstances of that country. That I think give people something that few other people have, I think. And I, I, it sounds as if I'm saying that there's something unique about Nigeria, and that's probably not that's probably not the case. But I think for people who go there regularly, it can frustrate you. It can be it can be a very very uh, annoying place to be, and it's chaotic and all of those things. But I think people who know it well know that it has something that few other places have.
0: I love that, Richard. And you've now got me wanting to go to Nigeria, and I think this is where probably a podcast for yourself in all of the places you've been. And I know as many of these stories are in your book, so I won't share. I, I, I'll leave people to to find that, and we'll talk about that later. But um, I I love that, and um, yeah, for anyone listening, I guess to your point around you know people's ability to, you're right. For some, this is something they'll you know they won't be able to do. I guess one of the the blessings in our industry is actually. There are a lot of firms that give you that ability to go abroad, and we mentioned Price waterhouse where where you started big firms like that for anyone listening do have those sort of offices I know for you know firms I've worked at and will come on to the control risk growth story because when when they joined you were fifty when when you retired, there were three thousand and quite a few offices in between there for people to visit so really good to hear about that. I want to turn, Richard, back to what you were saying, and it it brings me on to a topic around humility, because I know this is quite a key area for you and something that you really focused on in in your role as CEO and, and as a leader of control risks. I want to start, though, with what you were talking about around actually your approach when you returned to the UK and almost how did you rein that in? How did you find that humility to get to the point that you you, know, you talked about getting to. Was it that someone, you know one of your leadership teams, someone senior to you sort of took you aside and said, Richard, you've got to change this? Was it you were seeing, like I guess, things that you didn't want to in terms of how people were reacting to your behavior? When, in that sort of early few years when you'd come back from the US, how did you or did you temper that to help you then progress to that point where you, you became CEO?
2: Yeah, there were plenty of people. As I said before, I was blessed with, Walking into an organisation when I started that had been founded and developed by some really remarkable people, many of whom are still friends and mentors many years later, and perfectly happy to tell me that I was getting it wrong. Yeah, and did so, and that was as I as I said before, we too much I think of our business culture, certainly in this country is this sort of passive aggressive dance where nobody ever really says what they think Uh, and i was fortunate to be in an environment where there was certainly a bit of that but there were also people who liked me were prepared to back me ultimately backed me to be the ceo of the firm but were unhesitant in telling me that i was i was getting it badly wrong at moments and in an un- entirely unsolicited fashion but i am enormously grateful that just as i think i was just getting too big for my boots they really told me that and you do need that i mean for sure you need that and if you let the if you let the ambition gene out of its cage it does need it does need course correction occasionally and it's very hard to do it to yourself you do need people around you who are prepared to do that and that's been a constant theme actually and I might be jumping ahead here slightly but when i became ceo and after you've kind of spent the first few months or whatever of being a ceo when you realize that it's not the job you thought it was it's way more complicated but after a while the kind of trainer wheels come off and you think yeah no i can do this and that's where you you know your greatest enemy is hubris is that that sense that somehow you've kind of made it you know it and you need people and you need to deliberately surround yourself with people in whatever shape or form or where they sit in the organization who will tell truth to power and it's the it's the greatest gift you can give yourself as a leader how do you go about cultivating
0: that so you yeah, jump jumping to that sort of your time as ceo I'm sure for some people, it's it's quite easy to pick people who say yes to you or people that you like. Actually, how did you go about proactively creating, I guess, that leadership team, to your point, that you were confident would talk truth to power, would say, no, Richard, this is not right, or you know we're going in the wrong way. How, how did you go about doing that? So I think very deliberately, you need people who are
2: told truth to power who aren't in your leadership team. I think you need to have... Touch points in the organization of people that you trust who know you, they can be really quite junior, but will be prepared to sort of take you aside and say, I don't think you did that very well. And, you know, you could have, as CEO, you could have done a town hall meeting, you could have given a speech, you could have done all sorts of things. You need somebody who's essentially on your side, but willing to give you the unvarnished warts and all feedback who will say to you, you know what, I think you can do better than that. And I think you managed to you managed to screw it up in the following ways. And it's really hard to take sometimes because it's not that you don't try and it's not that it's guaranteed that you're going to get it right every time. But you do need somebody. And that first, those those people, plural, should be outside, I think, of your immediate, immediate management team. And I think it's I had two or three of those people pretty much throughout my career. And I was also blessed to have the sort of founder generation of the organization who were no longer in leadership positions, but were still involved in in the firm in various ways, uh, also giving me that sort of positive but critical feedback. And that's what you want. You want a critical friend in those moments. And ideally, they should be outside the leadership team, I think. Within the leadership team itself, the bad decisions that I look back and I think I made was when. It was the consequence of groupthink by having a leadership team that liked each other, that knew each other very well, that were well synchronized with each other, had spent years often kind of working together. They'd been through some adversity together. and You just felt you could finish each other's sentences, that it was, you didn't really have to explain anything. Everybody kind of just could anticipate. And that's a really, really lovely feeling. But it's also got its dangerous downside. And the dangerous downside is you don't do enough critical thinking in that environment. Mm. So what you aspire to create in terms of a highly synchronized leadership team where everybody knows each other and kind of can anticipate what's needed rather than having to go through an elaborate process of explanation. That in some ways is the is the ideal that you're trying to achieve. But in achieving it, you're also creating this enormous vulnerability that you're going to start making stupid decisions because there isn't, enough, there isn't enough challenge, there isn't enough abrasion in the system. And running a diverse management team, which has diversity by all its different measures, but including cognitive diversity, people who just think and feel differently to each other and are prepared to express that and have the confidence and trust to be able to express that, is a way harder, way more demanding team to run. takes far longer. And that, I think, is where the real hard yards of diversity are made, is is in that environment. So you can create a, what appears to look like a, a, a diverse team, but it doesn't have genuine diversity if it becomes really smooth and easy and collegiate. It's the enemy of good, but it is... Inevitably, where people try to get to because it feels so it feels so smooth it feels so it's like putting on a favorite
0: sweater, it just feels comfortable and you know what you're doing. how did you balance that how did you, you know, to your point there everyone i mean we all want a leadership team that's collegiate and we're both wearing sweaters today you know it feels like that. How did you balance that so that you maintained i guess that healthy tension and mitigated i guess that risk of groupthink? And were there any signals that you looked out for, I guess, almost like a year, two years in advance? Because at that level of an organization, leadership changes can take time. What were the early signals when you were leading control risk that said, actually, I think we need to either change the management team, or maybe it was bringing a critical friend, whatever it was you needed to do to keep that slight abrasion, to keep that, you know, to avoid groupthink? Well, there are
2: some metrics that you
0: can watch out for. And that's, in an organization like
2: the one at Control Risks, was that a very small amount of, percentage-wise, a very small amount of the global fee income was generated in the UK. And yet when I took over, exclusively the senior management team were all based in the UK. That's a very obvious area that you can address. And that's to create a global management team that is genuinely global in that it has people of different backgrounds and different identities from different parts of the world and you have to then go through the somewhat laborious and expensive process of bringing them together as a management team as frequently as you need and that probably was to your question was the single most important thing that i tried to do to break that sense of we've all got this figured but we all live within a few miles of each other in in southern england And we all work in the same office and we all eat the same thing for lunch and we go to the same pub for a drink on Friday evening, was to break that down by just smashing the geographical confines of of that. That's very self-evident, and most well-run firms that have got any kind of global ambition will already be doing that. But it was much, much harder to to run a to run an organization like that and try and do things in a way that sounded as relevant to people working for the firm in shanghai as it sounded to people working in los angeles or rio de janeiro or cape town or delhi or tokyo wherever wherever in the world the firm was represented it's very difficult because you can drain the color out of the organization by trying to make it kind of culturally neutral and there is a balance there and there's a there's Sort of trial and error experience needed to be able to get that right. So the organisation does have character; it does have its own kind of fingerprint, and it isn't just a bland, uniform, culturally neutral, almost automated head office function. And yet, it doesn't sound as if it's it's excluding the vast majority of people who work for the organisation by sounding too too geographically insular.
0: I think that's a fascinating point, and I always love to get details on this show, because as I say, I know it really helps my listeners, is actually how do you strike that balance? Because to your point, obviously making the management team more diverse helps to avoid the sort of really isolated groupthink of what's right right for the UK. You've hit the nail on the head, I guess, with the other concern of actually if we try and make a culture that uh, I guess appeases everybody, do we end up with a flavour of vanilla? How did you strike that balance to make a culture that worked locally but was distinct enough globally because I think that sounds like a fascinating challenge and again just because we've jumped forward in the story could you just place you mentioned some of the offices how big control risks was at this time because I think that will help our listeners as well set the challenge here it was no longer 50 people and a few offices it was much much bigger by then
2: it was much bigger it was in the region of about 34 offices spread right across the world it had a regional regional structure uh, with regional CEOs running different different parts of the globe. Uh, it was running, like most consulting firms ran, uh, as, as a quasi-matrix. Uh, geography predominated, but service lines crossed through the geographies, uh, which is a whole world of pain in its own right. It had all of the kind of head office functions, some of which were dispersed around the world, but most still concentrated in the UK. Uh, I lived for uh, a period of time that I was CEO. I lived in Singapore and commuted backwards and forwards to Singapore from London and everywhere else that my travel schedule took me. So my kind of solution to that was to try and make myself a global citizen and to encourage the management team to do that as well. But to your point about how you strike that balance between making it ridiculously vanilla versus Sounding as if it's irrelevant to 90% of the people who work for the organization. Well, you can't eradicate the risk of the risk of doing that. And at the end of the day, I was the British CEO of a British company. So you just have to you know, kind of people when they come in the door in the morning, they have to kind of tick a box and say, I get that. This is I, I don't work for uh, an American company. I don't work for an Australian company. I work for a global company, but it has british origins, and it for the for the moment has British leadership so you can't expect to to do away with that, but I feel you have to and this this was also so relevant in terms of what what the organisation does for its clients. You are useless if you can't at least try and see the world through the eyes of the people that either you're employing or that you're working for and it's a it's a it's a hobby horse of mine that the world and i mentioned it before the world world looks and feels different if you're american to being british and the same applies if you're russian if you're chinese if you're japanese if you're nigerian if you're colombian it just feels different and we can't make necessarily all these assumptions about what's important or what's explicable or what feels right unless you can really get a sense of what it feels like to walk a mile in their shoes. And I tried to do that. It's got much harder for people, obviously, in the last two years with the pandemic. But I tried to do that, and I tried to encourage my management team to do that. You can't eradicate bias uh, completely, obviously, and it probably would be undesirable to try. But you can get people to pause and think before they make some definitive proclamation about how the world really is just get them to pause and think how is this going to play in different parts of the organization how is this going to play with different clients and you can find yourself at times kind of treading on eggshells and that's frustrating and time-consuming but i think as a as a leader of an organization that purports to be global not just in terms of people it employs as i say but in terms of the clients that it serves You have to get into that. You have to get into that mindset. And for me, at least, I couldn't get into that mindset by looking at sets of accounts and reading spreadsheets and management, monthly management reports. I had to I had to walk the talk. I had to go and feel it and see it and experience
0: it. I want to touch on your point. Richard, and it kind of combines both around that sort of understanding those different regions, and you mentioned the regional CEOs, and also the point around humility. Because I know when we spoke in preparation for this conversation, you made the point that humility is really powerful because sometimes you can be riding, take the casino analogy, you can be sort of hitting blackjack every time, and sometimes your luck can run out. And actually, that is not always down to you. Sometimes that's the market or the world at large. And I'd love to understand, to your point there, when you were leading all of those different diverse regions, actually how you were able to get a sense of which leadership team or which divisions, you know, luck had run out and it was just going to be a cold patch, as we all have, versus those where it was actually a structural or a people challenge. And and what I'm trying to strike at here is, I know a lot of consultancies that grow, obviously they bring in leadership teams below them. And you need to delegate that responsibility, but actually how you then strike that balance between trusting people to get on with it versus knowing when actually it's the people, not the market, and knowing you have to make changes. Does that as a, sort of, as a setup make sense? And if so, I would love to hear how you, how you dealt with that. So in many ways, that's right, right at the core of what is, in some ways,
2: I think, most difficult about managing performance in an organization is knowing what is responsible for good performance and knowing what is responsible for suboptimal performance. And at times, it's the impact and capability of the individual, but always in relation with the market opportunity. And making that judgment about how well the set of people are doing to exploit the opportunities that are before them And how well they're adjusting when those opportunities change or shift, client appetites change, the issues they're facing change. The whole digital revolution came along during my time at Control Risks and caused us to have to root and branch rethink not only how we delivered our services, uh, utilising technology, but also what our services actually were in terms of the fact that it completely reshaped the whole risk environment for for many organizations as we know and so there are a lot of criteria there against which you're judging you're judging performance and it isn't just the output of the calculation around kind of chargeable hours hours billed fees collected cash available is yes that's the simple kind of metric that we're all we're all kind of obsessing about in consulting But in terms of people's potential, people's development, it's this somewhat at times ambiguous interaction between capability and opportunity that you're making judgments about in terms of reward, in terms of future career paths, in terms of allocating uh, scarce investment monies. And that itself, I don't feel there's a sort of performance management system that fully reflects all of those judgments you have to make in terms of people's performance and the future direction of the firm. And that, I think, probably, this is not all of your listeners will agree with this. I think that's more of an art than a science. And in an organization that is reasonably transparent about how people are rewarded and who who gets the next promotion and how people's careers develop you have to be able to justify that and when it stops being science and becomes art it gets harder to be able to kind of point to numeric metrics and say for the following reasons this is now going to happen because you are having to you are having to use experience but i think that's probably right otherwise senior managers maybe this is maybe this is advisable in many ways but senior managers could otherwise be replaced by, by computers by robots right and that that may well be desirable in many ways much less temperamental much less prone to sort of prima donna complexes than human beings but um i think there is something about being able to use our judgment about when is it that a market has shifted and people are working round the clock working their socks off to adjust and make that better versus people who are just riding a wave that's not of their own creation. And the nature, I'm afraid, of lots of alpha personality types who often find their way to the top of consulting firms is that when it comes to taking the credit, they're very, very happy to take take maximum credit. When it comes to blaming environmental factors for their own shortcomings, they're also pretty good at that. And as, as the leader of the organization, you have to arbitrate very often between those two different uh, versions of events.
0: With it being an art, this question might not be easy to answer, but I love what you were just saying there around sort of having to you know, be the arbitrator and, and make that judgment. And this is probably overly simplistic, but are there or sort of were there things that if you had concerns, was there sort of a list of you know, mental list of three things you'd be looking at? Are there certain elements that you'd always go to to try and give you, I guess, a more a sort of more clarity or a clearer picture? I'm just fascinated if anyone's in this position right now, what you used to do to try and discern the environmental from the performance factors. You have to try
2: and see people in action in different ways. You have to be able to see people in action in terms of their interaction with their own teams. And you have to try and see people interacting with their clients. you also have to determine if they're overworking and that I think is one of the one of the absolute key criteria is, is to watch for is people who just become obsessively workaholic and lots of consultants have a tendency to do that. The economic model sort of encourages it right? but it's normally in my experience an absolute watchword when people become become obsessively workaholic. That something else is going wrong in the organization beneath and around them the difficulty of watching people in action with their teams and watching people in action with their clients is that your mere presence as the ceo or senior leader completely changes the environment and the behaviors that people exhibit and there's not much you can you can do about that and also it tends to be filtered so you you arrive in a territory as ceo and say I'd like in the time I'm here, I'd like to see five, five different clients. I'd like to have dinner and I'd like to do this. So there's a selection process of people who are filtered through to you. And I think there is a skill that good CEOs have, which I think I was sort of acquiring during my tenure, but never quite mastered, which is how to have a conversation with a client that enables you to get some firsthand feedback on the quality and caliber of the people that you're locally employing but without ever explicitly saying that's what you're doing and i think that is a i think that is a ceo skill is ability to read between the lines in what will be generally sort of cordial slightly stage managed situations and to be able to sort of wiggle through to some deeper truth is a skill that I wished I'd had on day one and probably
0: needed a bit longer to really try and master. But I think good CEOs are able to do that in global organizations. I want to turn to something that I think touches on that a little bit, but equally, I think will take us on to a more holistic topic around culture and values because this is something again you mentioned around look fundamentally you need to look at things from different people's vantage points and that could be cultural it could be values and i know when we spoke you you mentioned that values are really important and i think in today's world culture is something that's that's got a lot of press everyone talks about having a good culture there's a lot of money that's spent on culture values typically tends to be i guess underserved or it's five things that get created in a workshop stuck up on a wall. And, and you know, as one of my lo- my guests a long time ago said, stuck above the printer for no one to read. And I'd love to understand your take about values versus culture and 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 almost the importance hierarchy thereof and why you see that and the impact it had for you at control risks.
2: It's a really interesting topic, and we can easily fall into a sort of lexiographer's minefield here by getting us stum- or i can at least of kind of stumbling over terminology but i do make a distinction and the distinction i think goes something like this culture and you're right it is everywhere people write books about it people talk about it incessantly i'm not entirely sure what people mean by corporate culture sort of habit formed ways of doing things that are somehow entrenched in an organization. I think when people talk about cultural change, kind of raises a red flag for me. And the reason being is, I think in my experience, not just my control risk experience, but my experience of working with numerous clients over many years in all sorts of different kind of geographies and different situations. And now my life as an executive coach now, vicariously helping people run organizations, is I often feel that culture is a handbrake on the organization. It's an excuse not to change. So I have a somewhat jaundiced, cynical view, but more often than not, when people talk about the culture of the organization, it is normally in the context of them not wanting something to happen, not wanting change to occur and so i'm i'm very nervous about what is culture in an organization because i think as i say i think too often it's a it's a set of restraints that have been put around the organization in order to somehow maintain the status quo for often a small group of people at the top of the organization who want to sort of perpetuate it in their own image and that sounds very cynical and it probably is but just bear with me that, that that's what I think culture can be at its worst. Values, which are a set of criteria that you use whether to do things or not, they're much more energizing, much more enabling as an organization. It's, it, re, it can be reflected in the kind of quality of conversations that you have with people whose careers you're trying to help. It can be reflected in the recruitment room as to who you hire and who you don't hire. It can set the tone with clients about the nature of the engagement that you're going to have. It can have a determination on how you price things. It's, I think, much more all encompassing thing. And I appreciate they're very hard to write down and they do get stuck above the photocopier and everybody ignores them. But there's something about the personal qualities of an organization and the personal qualities of the people who run it that if that's if that's values Mm. then i think that's that's a much more sensible distinction to make than something that is much more kind of amorphous and somehow it's like sort of treacle that has got into the gaps in the
0: organization which i think is culture i think some really interesting points there and to your point and and the semantics i think you know we can part because yeah the the where it starts and where it ends i think there has been plenty of books on but i i think your point's very valid around that culture can often be used as a a blocker and and maybe that's one way of of looking at it and i'll try and ask this question in a way that makes sense so tell me if it doesn't richard is actually is that to, to our conversation earlier around how you knew when your management team was was getting too comfortable is that one of the markers either with your own team at control risk or now you're an executive coach? Is that the sort of delineation is where culture is being used to constrain change of the sort of that's not how we do it around here. That's where you risk the negative versus values of we have certain values, we are ethical and therefore we won't do, you know, values are things you judge an action against whereas culture typically is used to slow down action. Is that sort of the distinction as you see it?
2: Uh, that's absolutely how I see it. And culture is like it's like a, we, we've used a sort of woolly cardigan metaphor or analogy before. And culture can be like a nice warm bath, right? It feels, it feels lovely to be in it. And you can sort of wallow in it. And then you suddenly find the bathwater's gone cold. And it's a deeply uncomfortable place to be because time has moved on. So I don't, wanna, I don't want to flog that <laughs> analogy to death. You're absolutely right. What in the moment feels lovely and warm and friendly and familiar Mm -hmm. can very quickly become the enemy of of change and innovation, which can often feel uncomfortable, right, as well as energizing and exciting. Mm. So I think you're right. I think values are something against which you can judge potential actions. And maybe that's in order for them to have validity, they need to be
0: able to fulfill that function. but. Culture culture gives me the creeps. Bringing that to life then, I'd love to understand how you balanced that while you were leading control risks. Because the thing that struck me in that story is over your tenure, the, the firm went from 50 people to 3,000 people. And that's a huge, a huge jump. I've had guests on here who've grown their businesses to 100 people and they say, you know, 10, 20, 30 people is a big change. Actually, how did you balance that I guess to your point, and I'll try and use the Bath metaphor, because I think the way you described it is really nice, is actually how did you ensure that you kept a culture that was control risks without those stifling elements while instilling values that would scale as you grew the firm? Was it an iterative process? Was it something else? How did you manage that inherent tension, I guess, between culture, values, and growth?
2: Uh, I'll answer that in a minute, Nick, but just just to ensure that I... I'm sticking to what I think is important. We did mention humility a moment ago. Moving from 50, 60 people to 3,000 people, I played a small part in that. I certainly wasn't in any way responsible for making that that happen, and I would never claim to take credit for that. I I hope what I did there was successful. I hope I what I did there was positive. But it absolutely uh, the latter part of that journey was an entire process of of teamwork. And we can come back to this, but control risks rode successfully a series of waves, m- mostly around the globalisation of the economy, uh, global economy, but also lots of other things happened in the world that came along that were pregnant with opportunity for the firm. And it was a question of, 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 of kind of riding, riding those waves successfully, or at least getting back on the wave
0: when you fell off. Just because you've... So firstly, Richard, thank you for, for that clarity. And... Just because you said that, and I don't want to lose it, but that point around these waves and that sort of areas rich and pregnant with opportunity, it's a slight tangent. So forgive me, but that's something I think a lot of consulting firms and leadership teams struggle with: the difference between shiny new thing and genuine seam of of opportunity. How how did you and the leadership team do that? We will, if, and and if I've knocked you off your train, keep going with um, values and culture. But I just that was a really interesting point. I didn't want to lose. Yeah. So. Well, I'll come back to the values and culture thing in, in, in a minute, but it's it's inevitably
2: trial and error. When when you see things happening in the world and you want to kind of jump on it, it's very, very difficult because none of us none of us can see into the future. So there were as I say, the sort of whole globalization of the economy, what used to be called emerging markets, the whole frenzy to invest globally, the rise of China, the digital revolution, the nine eleven wars, nine eleven itself the global financial crisis for good and for bad, all of these things were hugely shaping in the environment in which control risks operates. And there were lots of things that we tried that didn't work, and there were things that we tried that did work, things that just came along that kind of swept us up with our clients. This of post-9-11 world of people completely recalibrating how they think about security and risk. The Global financial crisis completely recalibrated how people felt about financial services and regulation and all all of those things. All of these things had very disruptive, but ultimately brought very profound change to the marketplace in which we operated. And back to my earlier point about in America, if you fall off your horse, it's okay as long as you get back on it. But it's a willingness to try things that might fail. And organizations i think consulting firms included over strategize or they try to strategize to the nth degree to the point that they become inert and i think there is a moment to let the entrepreneurial impulse go or unleash it without necessarily having nailed it down so hard that it can't actually move off the table right and i think that's an important part of Of managerial or kind of strategic risk taking is that the room for failure, the possibility for failure, has got to be absolutely there. If you try and eradicate that, then the chances are you're missing the opportunity. And I I think that's an important lesson that I, I kind of learned somewhat haphazardly and intermittently over many years. But looking back, I think that's an important point. To the other point about how you an organization that kind of spreads around the world changes what it does becomes different in almost every aspect how do you keep some kind of values going yes it's 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 very difficult and longevity helps if you have kind of senior leaders you have people who've been senior leaders but are prepared to step back and stay in the firm you kind of have a you have a sort of viral mass that can continue to sort of shape and act as a role model and advocates and ambassadors for the kind of values of the organisation. I think what sometimes happens in firms is that there's a changing of the guard almost entirely every few years with new management teams, new people. And there is something about keeping that blend going of the old and the new and I think as a leadership team, sort of recognizing that it's a thing and it's a thing that you can't put on your balance sheet. It's a thing that doesn't appear in your annual statement, your annual report in your statement. But it is a thing that that sense of continuity, that sense of where we sit at any moment of time in the firm's history, how we connect heritage with the future, how we put the present in the right Kind of historical context. In some ways, these are kind of nonsense concepts because they're just they're, they're they're meaningless. They're just they're just words, but they strike an emotional chord with people, young and old, in the organization at every stage of their careers. People like to know where they fit in the narrative, and so I think storytelling or creating a sense of historical perspective for people in the organization. Is important and in some ways what you're doing is you're creating a sort of artificial kind of storybook really so it is artificial because the organization only ever exists in the moment it's the past is, the past has gone and the future hasn't happened yet but you have to sort of you have to take people's imagination and you have to creatively enable them to see kind of where, where they are in that story And that's, that's difficult, but I think it is the job of leadership to do that. And I think if we become too functional, too kind of utilitarian in our approach, then we kind of lose that and people lose a sense of, can lose a sense of purpose and place in an organization
0: as a consequence. I think that nicely tees us up to bring us back to the values point. And I know you touched on it there, and I guess exactly what you're saying around you need to to keep that entrepreneurial drive. And also, I really like that storytelling piece. And my limited... I, my history teacher was probably frustrated with me as opposed to the other way around. So I, my history knowledge is limited. But that, I guess, is the nature of many you know, many longstanding religions or philosophies as it is those values that are instilled through those stories. And I guess interested is maybe the answer to this is a how you did it or how you advise people but is that where those values we touched on come to life is it about reinforcing those through the the history of the firm the stories you tell and also i guess equally importantly the vision for the future is that how you ensured the values led or is is that you know a small or a sub part of a bigger piece no it's a it's the essence of of how you do
2: it you have to be on your watch against excessive nostalgia and. Felt at times that sort of in my career that might have at times fallen back too willingly on creating a sort of nostalgic kind of mythmaking about the organisation. And you know, some people find that very inspirational, and that's good. And it's good to know where the organisation came from, and it's good to recognise the people. Who, who created it? Who had the kind of gumption and drive and sort of risk-taking gene to be able to get organisations up and going in the first place? But creating too much sentimental mythology around that has has got it as dangerous as well.
0: Completely agree, Richard. And actually. This may be to the point around the story we've just talked about or or completely tangential, but it was something in the, the control risk story that jumped out to me. And this is very much with that consulting hat on. And it's largely around the change of ownership structure. And so some people listening might now check out because we've, we've done a lot of meaty things on values and, and culture, and this is quite technical. But I think for any consulting leaders listening, I suspect this is going to be really interesting because you took the firm, as I understand it, you went from a share ownership structure to becoming a partnership. And I've always worked in firms that were partnerships. So I'm fascinated where people operate in a different structure. I'm even more fascinated with those that make a change. So I'd love to maybe open it up to you and just start with that journey. And and can you sort of start the story of, of where that decision came from and ultimately why you and the leadership team decided to make that transition in the business?
2: So Control Risk, like a lot of consulting firms, had a founder generation of people who uh, owned a large part of the organization. By the time I became CEO, sort of in the 2004-2005 time, there was a founder generation of shareholders, there was a private equity firm that owned a minority of the firm, and then there was a long tail of other employees who owned shares very many in some cases, quite a few in others. And there was pressure on the organization because the private equity firm was ultimately looking for an exit. And our very patient founder generation at uh, one stage, at some stage, were hopeful that they might may see the color of their money, uh, which was accumulating in value. But at some stage, they had plans to go to the shops and spend it uh, and control risk share certificates and not generally tradable for expensive cars and foreign holidays so there was a, there was pressure to find a new way to do that and the very obvious thing to do was to throw our lot into the private equity world altogether and essentially sell the company to a private equity firm and consulting firms do that regularly and do that successfully and then essentially rotate through a series of private equity ownership cycles The control risk business, I think at the time, was ill-suited to that, Uh, and there's sort of details that are probably uh, too complicated to go into, but control risk at the time, very heavily involved in the Middle East, particularly in Iraq. And so a large portion of the firm's income ultimately needed to be less concentrated and less focused on a very small number of very large contracts in some specific geographies. And that's the sort of thing that private equity generally doesn't like. It likes predictability. It likes annuity. It likes to be able to see a steady stream in order to be able to kind of build a sort of debt picture around that and how you're going to essentially kind of crank value out of the next iteration of ownership. So there were some sort of structural impediments to doing that. So in the end, to cut a long story short, what we did was borrow a lot of money from the bank, buy out all the shareholders. And reformed the company as a form of partnership but one that retained a corporate structure with a board uh, an external board uh, an external chair uh, then a ceo and a management team and then a partnership level below that uh, we actually did it uh, in a way that also continued to give is so control is ultimately owned by an employee ownership trust so we kind of retained some of the kind of core values of the organization, which was about making sure that uh, the the kind of value and the well-being of everybody who worked in the organization was taken into consideration, but that the people who were driving economic change in a positive way were going to be the principal beneficiaries. And we took away that ticking clock problem of having external investors who at some stage are looking... To translate share certificates into hard cash, Uh, and that was that sounds easy when we sit here and 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 talk about it, but at the time it was enormously enormously complicated, uh, and relied on some kind of financial structural planning that was very innovative in order to enable enable that to happen, and what we tried to achieve or what we tried to create out of that was an organisation that still had managerial discipline as i think everybody who's worked in a partnership knows at their worst they can be dysfunctional you, 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 you can be gurgling down a vortex of dysfunctionality very quickly in the partnership model at their best they give people enormous sense of, of belonging and ownership and a very clear relationship between hard work effort and and remuneration without too many kind of distractions in between and so we tried to create the best of the best of both worlds which had a clear management structure this is a complex business and complex things for for organizations at times in very very difficult perilous parts of the world you need decisive and clear leadership and management in order to make sure that an organization that does things helps clients in moments of acute stress sometimes controversial stress. That there is absolute clear managerial hierarchy and you're not wallowing in an excess of sort of democratic partner lack of accountability. You need to be able to run an organization that puts itself in harm's way on a regular basis. You need to be able to run it, in my view, with clear kind of corporate responsibility. Uh, the brand is everything. The brand is absolutely everything for an organization that's in the place control is it? And just so I, I hope that I hope that kind of combination that we created that's still going very strongly at control risk now. I hope that that was an innovative way not only to solve an ownership and funding problem but also to create something that suited the nature of the business and the the kind of and what
0: what motivates it enables it not only to be successful but also to keep safe. To your point of there's probably a lot more complexities financial and otherwise than we have time to today. i I won't open it up too much because we could probably do a whole nother two hours on the uh, the transition itself. But to your point there around trying to balance that structure and the the different the, the best bits of a partnership with the best bits of a corporate, I'd be interested in how you were able to take all of what became the partners on that journey because in most partnerships, it is relatively democratic. You you know you have managing partners and, and committees, but it's relatively democratic. And and to your point, you wanted to keep the corporate structure. Was there ever a tension between people who were being made, I guess, equity partners, but may not have that decision making that you would have as the CEO or the management team? And how did you, as much as we can cover in uh, in the time we've got, how were you able to navigate that change? So that it didn't end up with sort of a bad taste where people were thinking i've I've you know put up a lot of money, but I don't feel I've got the same stake or the same decision making as maybe some of my fellow partners who were in the management team. How did you strike that balance?
2: So I think it's a bell curve, right? I think in terms of look at in an organization like that, I'm sure it applies elsewhere it's a bell curve in terms of the partnership. So most partners, I think, as long as they have trust in the leadership and the management are perfectly happy with that arrangement. They trust that the organization is essentially fair. They trust that the organization is essentially transparent. They trust that the leadership of the organization are decent people who are imbued with those values, who are not in it purely and simply to feather their own nest. And they think that there's a board of directors, external directors, external chair, who act as a sort of check and a balance to ensure that fair play is being maintained. I think 80, 90% of partners sit in the middle of that bell curve. To the left of the bell curve, there are some outliers who absolutely couldn't care less as long as what they're allowed to do is go and be an expert with their clients. And all of this corporate governance stuff is irrelevant to them as long as they can on a, on a regular basis flex that expert muscle that they've honed over many years so they don't really care group of people in the middle for whom they are trusting and think the organization is 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 essentially run on a fair basis and at the other end of the bell curve you will have some partners who are deeply skeptical and 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 there is abrasion and they do ask difficult questions and probably chafe somewhat at not necessarily having all of their democratic rights to be able to have an opinion on every last thing fully recognised. And that's that's okay. I mean, it's, it's a bit time consuming, but it's also a form of check and a form of check of a balance to have, if you like, the awkward squad asking difficult questions on a, on a regular basis. And if you're not, you know, I was, I was the CEO and used to, on occasions, drive me to the brink of insanity. But With the benefit of some distance and a little bit of hindsight, as long as that that bell curve more or less stays in balance or in harmony, then I think that you you have to accept that there is a certain amount of inherent tension in trying to run an organisation that tries to have the best of both worlds. And Um, if, if if what you're looking for is perfect harmony, then you're inevitably going to go home at the end of the day a disappointed person.
0: I really like the bell curve analogy, and I guess to your point, when when you get to an organisation, the the scale and size of control risks, you're always going to have that bell curve. And when you add in the ge- geographical differences and, and cultural differences, I, I actually like your frame of turning, you know, that that awkward squad into the they're actually they can be a um, a good check and balance, like you say, because if everyone's saying this is a great idea, to I guess your point much earlier around groupthink, you, there is a risk that you you have group thunk and therefore this could be a bad idea so i suspect where you have those critical friends although difficult sometimes it's probably a good validation that this could be a right thing yeah
2: and uh, i've said several times this conversation that believing your own propaganda hubris excessive self-confidence excessive self-belief is your number one enemy and you do need that awkward squad to sort of poke you in the side with something sharp on a regular basis to make sure that uh, you're not falling into that
0: trap. Well, Richard, I I think that is a brilliant place to bring us towards the end of our conversation. And, And I've taken a ton away from today. It's been fascinating... Hearing more about your story, as I say, I, I obviously listened to your conversation with Andrew. So I had an insight into some areas, but I think we've covered a lot of additional and new areas today. And, and if anyone wants to find out more about you, I'd, I'll put a link to that conversation in the show notes so that they can hear more. I'll also put a link to, to your book that we we mentioned. And I'm actually going to start. So I have three wrap up questions that I ask every guest, but just given the fact you have just written a book, I'm just intrigued because I've spoken to a number of people like yourself who have had successful careers in our industry, have you know, achieved a lot in, in their firm. And I, I'd just love to understand what led you to write it. What made you decide that, actually, yeah, I want to put down my, my career, my journey, the, the adventures I've been on into a book? Well, I guess like lots of people, I've harbored a desire to,
2: to write a book that's entirely driven by narcissism. Uh, the desire to see my name on the front cover of a book in a bookshop is is all bad impulses none of that none of that is good none of that is in any way you're sounding much more british than american now Richard. <laughs> I know. that's that that's that's universal that's global it's uh it's 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 pure narcissism i'd always enjoyed writing i used to write a, a blog when i was running control risks i was incredibly fortunate to go to some very, very interesting places at critical moments in their history, and I'm thinking particularly I think of the Middle East and places like Iraq and Afghanistan that have been in the news recently, so I felt I had the raw material, I had the desire for better or for worse uh, kind of motivations, and I just wanted to give that a go, and yeah, it may also have been something about making the transition to my coaching life of wanting to capture some of that in order to be able to kind of in some ways close down that nearly three decade journey in that world uh, and sort of put some put some closure behind it i'm not sure that necessarily worked but it sounds it sounds impressive to say that i think there's part of some plan i'm not sure that's really the case uh, anyway it happened and i'm delighted that it got published and i don't cringe too much when I open it up and reread certain passages. I cringe a little bit at others, but by and large, I think it tells a story of a really interesting world that lots of people uh, probably don't get to see. And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, was a world that I never anticipated that I would get to know in the detail and the granularity that I did, and for which I am enormously grateful
0: no i I completely agree, and yes, I think when you've had some of the stories that I know you have and we haven't had time to cover today, but I know they're in the book, I think you've you you are well within your rights to go and write that down and share it with the world and I guess to to your point, Richard, to turn what you've called that narcissism into you know some some useful advice for others my my question would be for others listening who might be in a similar place to you, you know they've had that career journey, they've achieved or had those adventures, having now written a book. Is there what what would you give as any advice to anyone thinking of doing it? Is there anything that made that really easy, really challenging? What what would you say to someone thinking about it? This is this is in danger of sounding like one of those values that sit on a <laughs> piece of
2: paper blue-tacked to the wall above the photocopier. But there is something about being generous, I think, to one's colleagues. And I think often in that consulting environment, people have an expertise that is valuable and is sellable and there is a tendency amongst the nicest of people to try and hoard that expertise to themselves because it's their intellectual property it's their ticket to get on the roller coaster if you like and i think the most successful consultants and the most successful kind of leaders of consulting firms are their hallmark is Complete and utter open generosity with what they know to others. And I think that's a little bit more subtle than it sounds because it makes it sound as if the opposite is a bad thing. But so many people, as I say, that is what enables them to earn their living. And people, completely understandably, are sometimes a bit proprietorial about that. Or they're proprietorial about a client relationship or they're proprietorial about some particular aspect of of their kind of knowledge or their capability. And my advice to everybody is to abandon that completely and just open the door and be as generous as you can with others and it will repay you.
0: Amazing. Well, I, I think actually, Richard, you have you've have front-run my next question because I always like to get that last advice for, for people and I think that's a fantastic point. And so I I'm going to reorder, actually, because I think that has answered that question. A last books question, and this is one, again, I ask every guest to... We've discussed your book, but I'd love to know the book or books that you... Take it now with your coaching clients, take it you know, over your time at control risks. Are there any books that you find yourself going back to or, or gifting or recommending to people most often?
2: So there's a book called How to Fail by Elizabeth Day, uh, who's a writer and broadcaster. Uh, and I think thematically, it's it's very apt for this conversation. And it touches on lots of parts of our conversation about what it means to work in America, what it means to navigate your way up the kind of career path, what it means to maintain sufficient degree of humility in your leadership, what it means, and the willingness to sort of experiment and throw caution to the wind occasionally and go with an idea that has the risk of not succeeding attached to it. So how to fail by Elizabeth Day, I think would be the book that I would suggest to people they dip into or indeed listen to Elizabeth Day, many podcasts
0: and broadcasts on the subject. I think given our conversation today, a fantastic recommendation, Richard. And I think to your point at the heart of, I guess, a lot of the journey that has helped shape you to get you to where you are today and that comfort with it, because you know you touched on the point around IP and consultants. And I think that is, particularly in Britain, another challenge is being willing to fail or risk failure often holds people back. So if that book helps with that, brilliant. Richard, that is, I think, our time today. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to to dig into more of the story and and get to speak to you as well. I I always love listening to podcasts with guests, um, as I did with yours and Andrew's, but I always wish I could ask the guest questions. So it was nice in this case to be able to, to do that. My only last question, and this is very much for anyone listening, if they want to find out more about you, they want to read your book, or as I say, hear more on any of these topics from you, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? They
2: can find me on LinkedIn, Richard Fenning on LinkedIn. There may be a couple of Richard Fennings. I have an Irish doppelganger who lives in Argentina. Uh, he's very good at redirecting lost correspondence <laughs> in my direction and vice versa. But you'll find me on LinkedIn. The book is called What on Earth Can Go Wrong? And you can find me at Manchester Square Partners, which is
0: my coaching firm. Amazing, Richard. Well, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much and enjoy your weekend. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Richard. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.